Hello and welcome to The Wire, your independent national coverage of a current affairs right across Australia on community and Indigenous radio. I'm Amina Shakur coming to you from 3ZZZ Radio in Melbourne, Victoria. And today on the show... So what they're going to do is they've committed to building 4,000 social homes over the next five years. So that's a lot of homes to build. The federal government announced more funds to build social and affordable houses across Australia. A brain disease linked to head impacts prompts a landmark $1 billion compensation claim. And the problem with that is uh, when the electricity demand goes up, you have to bring in uh, more generation units. So they should be available as well. But if they're not available, somehow we have to cut the electricity or it will lead to blackouts. Potential heat waves this summer could surge our electricity demand. We'll have this and more for you over the next half hour. Thanks for being with us today. We're on air right across Australia thanks to Community Radio Network and the support from the Community Broadcasting Foundation. First up today. This week, housing ministers from each state and territory gathered in Canberra to speak about the housing crisis. Today, the federal government announced more funds to build social and affordable houses across Australia. But would this be enough? To know more about the outcome, The Wire's Eduardo Jordan asked National Radio News political correspondent Amanda Kopp what the federal government announced as a new measurement to tackle the crisis. Yeah, that's right. So we had state and territory housing ministers come together to meet in Canberra in Parliament House with Julie Collins, the federal housing minister, yesterday. And what essentially came out of that was how they were going to spend the $2 billion that the government has already allocated towards building social housing. So what they're going to do is they've committed to building 4,000 social homes over the next five years. So that's a lot of homes to build. Uh, but I would say that the waiting list for social homes at the moment, for people waiting for social homes, is around 170,000, I think, just under that. Uh, so 4,000 when compared to 170,000 people waiting is a bit of a drop in the ocean, I've got to say. So the other thing that the government has done is not just increasing supply but also um, committing to something called the Housing Australia Future Fund, which is $10 billion that is going to be invested. And then the returns from that investment will be a permanent amount of money that goes towards building social and affordable homes. So it means that um, into the future, there will always be that money kind of spending into social and affordable housing, which at the moment is really, really behind. Yeah, absolutely. I agree with you, Amanda. So um, how will these funds be spent across the states and territories? So at the moment, it looks like Victoria and New South Wales are going to be getting the bulk of that money. So both those two states are going to be getting around half of that $2 billion collectively, uh, which does make sense given that they have the highest populations in the country. But there are specific funding for each state and territory, so no one misses out, but it is based kind of on population. Okay, so why is housing now such a big issue for the government? Yeah, so housing has been an issue really since the government got into power. So 
most Australians would know that, you know, whether they're trying to buy a home or whether they're trying to rent a home, that everything is getting more expensive. And that's um, due to a, a range of issues. Essentially, the main issue around it is supply. So the, the rate at which we're building homes in this country hasn't kept up with demand. And that, again, is also for a range of issues. You know, there's more people living in cities all the time. There's a high level of migration at the moment, although, you know, there is an argument that there wasn't any migration over COVID-19. So um, it's almost just kind of catching up to what we lost during the pandemic. Um, so supply is, is the real issue here. But, you know, we've seen for the last kind of 18 months, just consecutive interest rate rises. Um, and so it means that people who have bought a home are really struggling. Often, they're passing that on to renters so that rent is more expensive uh, but conversely even though it's costing more to have a mortgage uh, house prices just continue to go up which is making it a really really difficult scenario for a lot of Australians. Absolutely. Now what are the efforts so far that the federal government has done on top of these two billion dollars in tackling the housing crisis? So at the moment, the government has said that they're trying to do their best to increase supply. So the main thing that they're doing is talking with the states and territories. So the prime minister has kind of sat down with different state and territory leaders to say, look, guys, you know, it's not just a federal issue. It's not just a one state issue. It's a problem for all of us across all of Australia. You know, it doesn't matter whether you're in a city. It doesn't matter whether you're in a regional area. Housing is a massive problem. So the states and territories in particular are working to work with local councils um, to get those development approvals across the line so that there's actually more land being opened up to build those houses. National Radio News correspondent Amanda Kopp ending the report by the wise Eduardo Jordan. CTE is a brain disease found in people with a history of repetitive head impacts, often incurred during contact sports and other activities that involve repeated blows to the head. A group of former AFL players are seeking up to $1 billion in compensation in a landmark class action lodged against the AFL for the serious damage concussions have allegedly caused them. This case and others like it have forced a Senate inquiry into CTE and how AFL and NRL can do more to stop it. The wise Gabriel D'Angelo speaks to Associate Professor Michael Buckland, who's been studying CTE for several years now and has founded the Australian Sports Brain Bank. The Australian Sports Brain Bank is an organisation set up within the RPA Department of Neuropathology and the purpose is to allow families to donate their loved ones' brains after they pass away so we can uh, examine them for signs of brain trauma and particularly the uh, degenerative brain disease, chronic traumatic encephalopathy or CTE. To date, the only known cause of CTE is exposure to repeated head impacts and it's thought that these repeated head impacts uh, actually cause very mild traumatic brain injury and these multiple traumatic brain injuries over a period of time are the only known risk factor for CTE. In terms of the signs and symptoms, they're actually relatively non-specific. So to date, we don't have a good way of diagnosing CTE during life. Typically, we found in uh, younger people uh, that have died with CTE that they have had a history of so-called mental health problems. 
such as depression, anxiety, impulsivity, anger, aggression, drug and alcohol abuse, or thoughts or actions of suicide. Often in older people that die with CTE, their families report that they had problems with their memory and thinking, and they're often given a diagnosis during life of Alzheimer's disease. But when we look at the brain under the microscope uh, at autopsy, we see CTE. The Royal College of Pathologists of Australasia has released a position statement on CTE. What were the key takes from the statement and what are the RCPA's recommendations to combat CTE? So the Royal College of Pathologists based their position statement essentially building on findings of the recent Senate inquiry into uh, concussion and repeated head impacts in sport. And really the, the uh, central part of uh, the college's uh, statement was an explicit acknowledgement of the findings of this Senate committee that there was clear evidence of a causal link between repeated head trauma and subsequent neurodegenerative disease such as CTE. Uh, and the college endorsed that finding wholeheartedly. And because of the acknowledgement of this causal link, the college issued a call to action. Uh, the first call to action was for every Australian sporting organisation to develop a CTE prevention or, or risk minimisation protocol to make sure that uh, they are looking after people that play their sport. So uh, the basis of any CTE prevention protocol should be trying to reduce a person's cumulative lifetime exposure to repeated head impacts, as well as increasing the age that a person uh, is first exposed to these repeated head impacts. And the college does say that they are calling for low or no contact versions of contact sports to be played by children under the age of 14 and this particularly applies to school sports. On the 1st of December 2022, the Senate referred an inquiry into concussions and repeated head trauma in contact sports. There, the Senate outlined a number of recommendations to the federal government and to sports bodies to try to combat the rise in CTE in contact sports. One of the key members in the inquiry is Green Senator Janet Rice, who spoke with The Wire to discuss the Senate's findings. Look, we found that concussion was a very significant issue and that manage, research and management of concussion and knowledge about concussion wasn't um, well developed across the community. And so uh, our, we heard from a lot of people who had um, experienced concussion, particularly um, in sports and also families of people who devastatingly had had um, family members who had suffered from repeated concussions and then developed dementia and um, were found after they died to suffered from chronic traumatic encephaly. As, a, as an inquiry, um, we really made some very strong recommendations as to what changes were needed in terms of preventing and then managing concussion across the community. Are you satisfied with the response and approach by the AFL and NRL in particular to the recommendations? Look, the issue of how to prevent and manage concussion has been an ongoing issue that's been really highlighted by quite a lot of media reporting over the last couple of years. The AFL and NRL, after seeing our report, basically have said that they will consider it. We still think there needs to be a lot more to be done, both at the sporting level and at the junior levels of the sport, which is why 
we recommend essentially we need to have the federal government involved. There needs to be a coordinated government approach rather than just leaving it up to the individual sporting organisations. Due to the violent nature of both Aussie rules and rugby, do you believe that CTEs could ever possibly be eliminated and policed properly from the game, especially at a grassroots level? Look, I think there's a lot that can be done to be reducing the impact of concussion. And what we learnt um, during the inquiry is that reducing the impact of concussion and and sporting and sports players being able to have a career and not ending up with CTE depends so much on how well concussion is identified. Well, first of all, minimising the uh, the concussion and then identifying when concussions occurred and then making sure that there is appropriate treatment and, and particularly people not putting themselves at risk again by being out and getting another head knock be- while their brain is still healing. That was Senator Janet Rice speaking to The Wire's Gabriel D'Angelo. As bushfires intensify in parts of Australia, the federal government grants increased protection to 25 species affected by the fires. However, Vets for Climate Action urges the government to tackle the root cause by strengthening environmental laws to address climate change's impact on wildlife. The wise Vanessa Gatica speaks to Dr. Elise Anderson, a veterinarian and the Rural and Regional Program leads at Vets for Climate Action. With parts of Australia already witnessing bushfires before the start of summer, the government's decision this week aimed at safeguarding 25 species highlights the dire impact of these fires on the country's biodiversity. Nevertheless, Australia's environmental laws fall short in directly confronting the issue of climate change, the very force amplifying the frequency and severity of these devastating bushfires. Dr. Ellis Anderson, a conservation veterinarian from Bedford Climate Action, emphasized the threat climate change poses to Australian wildlife. Many of our native species and ecosystems in Australia are really already under threat from um, factors like habitat loss and pressures like invasive species. When we add climate change into that mix, it really makes the picture much more difficult for them. Climate change um, acts to increase the natural extremes of our already very variable climate here in Australia and adds risk of natural disasters like fires, floods, droughts, heat waves, and it means that these events become more frequent and more widespread um, that can lead to um, obviously a lot of habitat loss but also directly to animal death cells if you remember back to the horrible 2019-2020 black summer bushfires it's estimated that we lost about 3 billion animals in those fires which I'm sure everybody be um, agreeing is an absolute tragedy um, unfortunately many of our animals don't have the capacity to, uh, to protect themselves move away from danger when climate change poses risk to their their habitat and the place they live. So um, they're really under a lot of pressure and, um, and in some trouble. In your opinion, why is this crucial for the federal government to strengthen these laws to effectively combat the increasing frequency and severity of bushfires? We know now that we're feeling the effects of climate change here and now. It's no longer a hypothetical future threat. And those laws, when they were written over 20 years ago, didn't require decision makers to take into account the um, contribution that projects might be making to climate change. We know that 
um, the primary driver of climate change around the world is the burning of fossil fuels, and that's really contributing most strongly to global heating. But um, mm-hmm. our current environment laws don't require the emissions produced by new projects like gas and coal mines um, to be taken into account when they go through the approval process, even though um, the emissions that those projects produce are, are really driving climate change and um, fueling things like bushfires that posing a direct risk to our environment and all of our precious animal species. So that's why we really need to, to reform these laws and review them so that we can update them for the current circumstances and really make sure that climate change is taken into account in that process. How is your organization working with the veterinary profession to mitigate the impacts of climate change on animals? Best for Climate Action obviously um, represents members of the veterinary profession. That doesn't include just that, but also veterinary nurses, receptionists and other animal um, care professionals as well. Um, we all work in this industry because we love animals and protecting the health and welfare animal, of animals is part of our daily job. With climate change really pope posing a great threat to the welfare of all different types of animals. We think it's really important for our profession to um, act not just to uh, be less of a problem, but part of the solution as well. So we, we base our work in two areas. First of all, we try to make sure that our profession gets weight in the, in the race to get to net zero. So um, we have programs in place which help members of the veterinary profession and, and clinics in our community to um, substantially reduce their emissions and their environmental footprint so that we can be part of the solution and not contribute to the ongoing climate crisis. But we also take advantage of the fact that um, the veterinary profession is, is a really highly trusted one and we have a voice that's respected in our communities um, when speaking on behalf of animals for their health and welfare. And we use that um, trusted position to advocate for um, education about climate change and also directly to um, work with governments to um, work on stronger policy. We do that by meeting with politicians, making submissions to different reviews of relevant legislation um, and running campaigns and uh, educational events. So, um, yeah, we're doing a lot in this space, but obviously there's more work to be done. That was a veterinarian, Dr. Elise Anderson, speaking to the wires of Vanessa Gatika. Australia is gearing up for an unusual surge in electricity demand, raising worries about possible blackouts linked to more frequent heat waves. The Australian energy market operator emphasises the need for careful planning and more storage capacity to handle the extra strain, despite improvements from added wind and solar power. As the country shifts to cleaner energy, increased storage capacity and exploring solutions like community batteries and microgrids are crucial for a stronger power network resilient to extreme weather. I spoke to Associate Professor Lasantha Migahopola from RMIT about the need to build a stronger power grid in response to climate challenges. Why does extreme weather like heat waves uh, lead to high electricity demand and what problems does it create for the energy system? When the temperatures goes up, obviously uh, the confirmed levels goes down so that you have to switch on the air conditioning systems. So when the uh, temperature goes up to a very extreme levels, the air conditioning systems and the other cooling systems are going to work so hard. So the electricity demand obviously will go up with that. 
And the problem with that is uh, when the electricity demand goes up, you have to bring in uh, more generation units. So they should be available as well. But if they're not available, somehow we have to cut the electricity or it will lead to blackouts. And how's the frequency of extreme weather events increased in the last 30 years and what impact does this have on the reliability of the electrical grid? Yes, so there are two several types of extreme weather events. One is obviously the heat waves and the other types of weather events could be uh, severe thunderstorms and the uh, uh, cyclones. So in those sort of events, uh, the electricity system should be able to cope up with the uh, extreme demand or extreme uh, wind conditions. So under such situations, either demand goes up or the generation goes down. So uh, to the, to maintain the system reliability or the power grid reliability, we have to make a critical balance between the generation and demand. And in these events, what happens is either side get uh, imbalanced. And as a result, the system goes uh, to unstable state or it will lead to a blackout. And what steps has the Australian energy market operator taken to prepare for, um, I guess, the expected surge in electricity demand this summer? Uh, They have taken a lot of emergency actions. uh, So they have uh, put up emergency action plans, and I think it was released last week. So likewise, they have taken all the steps based on the resources they got. Uh, But still the question is, we have to prepare for the future as well. So as I mentioned earlier, the frequency of these events have been increasing in the past few decades. So therefore, the electricity system should be cope up and uh, tackle these issues in the future as well. So we have to look at the other options. So for example, uh, we need to look at more and more storage systems in the network. Already Australian energy market operator has identified that we need substantial amount of storage or energy storage in the electricity grid with the increased penetration of the renewables. So uh, we have to put this uh, plan in actions into action, in fact. So we have to really go and implement them in the future. Otherwise, uh, every year we may uh, end up uh, having these sort of uh, forecasted blackouts or any extreme conditions. So uh, already the planning side has been done, but the the next thing is execution of that plan. And can you explain how additional wind and solar capacity improves the energy system's reliance Um, and what challenges arise from the lower energy uh, production compared to, I guess, traditional generators? That uh, we are constructing a lot of wind and solar farms uh, across the country. Uh, the fact is, uh, these uh, wind and solar plants are not always operational at their full capacity. So if you put up a thousand megawatts of solar and wind, uh, the availability factor, or sometimes we call as capacity factor, is not high as a traditional generator. Because traditional generating plants, we can control the source or the uh, energy input to the system. But with the wind and solar, uh, either sun should be there or the wind should blow. So likewise, uh, we can't really uh, pull out the same megawatt capacity from these plants, uh, So unlike the conventional generators. So as I earlier mentioned, to firm this variable capacity, we need to have more storage systems. So it could be a larger storage system, or it could be uh, storage systems uh, which are built uh, c- close to the communities, like the community batteries, and so on and so forth. Yep. 
And I guess uh, with the expected heat waves coming up um, this summer uh, in Australia, will we be seeing more blackouts? Um, is that possible? Possibility and the risk is always there. Uh, but it's hard to say uh, how it's going to play it out because already uh, AMO has put forward a uh, very good action plan in place. So it's a matter of execution of that plan to avoid such a risk. But a risk is always there because any system uh, can be go broke uh, because of the extreme weather events. So we have seen these things in across the U.S. and in Europe as well. So it's all about managing and executing the action plan. That was Associate Professor Lasantha Megapula speaking to The Wire. And unfortunately, that's the end of today's show. Thanks so much for listening wherever you are in Australia. The Wire is a co-production between community radio stations, 3ZZZ in Melbourne, 2SER in Sydney, Radio Adelaide, 4ZZZ and Radio 4EB in Brisbane. With the great support of the Community Broadcasting Foundation and the Community Radio Network. Check out all of our stories on our website at thewire.org.au and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. The Wire acknowledges the traditional custodians of the Kula Nations where the program has been produced. And we pay our respects to the Aboriginal elders past, present and emerging. I'm Mamina Shiku, coming to you from 3ZZZ Radio in Melbourne, Victoria. Thanks so much for your company and we'll see you next time on The Wire.